Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, we will discuss privatization of public goods in the United States. Privatization gained steam in the 1980s during the Reagan administration. In the 90s, the Clinton administration continued this trend with public-private partnerships, PPPs. In the 2000s, privatization extended into charter schools, the outsourcing of government functions, and now seemingly everything. We will be discussing all of this with an expert on privatization. I am thrilled to have as a special guest today, Donald Cohen. Mr. Cohen is the executive director and founder of In the Public Interest. He is a founding board member of Power Switch Action, formerly Partnership for Working Families, and the author, along with Alan McCallion, of The Privatization of Everything, now available in paperback. Welcome to Politics Consider, Donald. Thanks for having me. How are things in Los Angeles? Well, um, they're fine. You know, the heat wave is broken. No earthquakes, no hurricanes, no wildfires right now. All is good. That sounds good. We'll take what we can get. So first, can you just tell the audience a little bit about In the Public Interest? Yeah, we're a national kind of research and policy and strategy center or, you know, that focuses on public goods and services, you know, preventing, you know, the privatization of public services and advancing the, the availability of you know, good, high quality public services. So we do research and policy development and work with groups around the country. So nonprofit advocacy, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So before we get into privatization, I just want to briefly mention public goods. In chapter one of your book, you make the case for a broad view of public goods to include things like public education. I will just note that in social democracies such as Western European nations, Canada, Chile, etc., public goods include health care, education, daycare, transportation, higher education, much more than what most people consider public goods in the U.S. And I'll just note that these countries have higher democracy scores than the United States. I like to talk about democracy. So you write that in the United States, corporations want to narrow the definition of public goods to only things that they can't profit on, like maybe shared air. Although I suppose if they could profit on that, they would. So almost everything else would be potentially private goods so that they could make a profit on it. So why is the definition of public goods important? How do you define it? Who should decide? And how does privatization tie into all of this? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So the economics textbooks, you know, kind of mainstream economics textbooks define public goods in the following way. Things that are non-exclusive and not rivalrous. So I'll explain what that means. You can't exclude someone from it, from using it, and one person using it doesn't limit another person's using it. For example, a street light. You know, you go under a street light to read your map. No one can be excluded from that. And one person, you know, looking at their map doesn't prevent someone else from looking at the map. Now, there are limits. You have both conditions have to be true. So in that conception, healthcare is a private good. You can exclude people. We do. And of course, it's rivalry. I mean, and it's, you know, and there's limits, but, you know, there's limits in all things. And so our definition of public good is different. It's a democratic conception of public. And they're as follows. I have a three point definition. One, it's they're the things that we all need to survive, to thrive, to get through life. Like all the things that you mentioned, healthcare, mobility, access to, you know, to clean air, access to, you know, to education, knowledge, set of things. Broadband. I think we could all agree right now you cannot survive without access to the internet. 
Yeah, we saw that during COVID with children, minority children who were at a disadvantage. Starting COVID, you know, like, I mean, I mean we all needed health care. We all need access. So that's the first thing. It's the stuff we all basically need, and it shouldn't matter how much money you make. The second part of my the definition is there are things that we need everyone to have. It's in our everyone's interest for every child to be educated, whether you have kids or not. It's in our interest for everyone to be healthy. COVID was really an exclamation point for me. The health of all of us depended on the health of each of us, whether you had health insurance or not. So that's the second. We It's in our interest for everyone to have it. And then the third is that if you believe that everyone needs it and all means all and everyone's in uh, at a level of equality, then the, we can only accomplish that if we do it together through our through our public institutions. Doesn't mean there won't be private involvement, but it means we can only get everyone health care without with government involvement. We can only get everyone educated. The, the, the basic point of that is we can decide democratically what those things are. 20 years ago, we would not have decided that everyone needs access to the Internet as a basic public good. I think it's pretty clear now. So things do change, but those are demo- those should be democratic decisions. Okay, yeah, I was just thinking NPR is non-excludable because, you know, we, they don't re- they can't really exclude people. I suppose it could be rivalrous. What about NPR, public radio? No, that I mean, first off, access to information about the world around us is something, you know, theoretically, we all need to live our lives, to foster democracy, to participate as a citizen and all of that. And so, yeah, uh, absolutely. They, you know, the, the issue is not NPR as a public good. The issue is knowledge and information about the world around us. Right. I was now, just there is yeah. there is for profit radio and we pay and, you know, we pay for that by listening to ads. Well, since you mentioned COVID, I just if you're OK with this, I'm just going to get right into this. So you and many others have written about privatization during the Trump administration, especially as it relates to COVID. Um, there were there are still news reports about unscrupulous people scamming people and ripping off taxpayers. Some people, some, I guess, groups of people and corporations charge people for tests they never performed, or test kits they never produced. And, you know, some attorneys general have pointed this, have said that this is the largest fraud in history. What happened? Well, it's too, uh, you know, I won't be able to describe it all because, you know, we all went through it together. The first thing to understand about, you know, the response to COVID was, you know, the president at the time's response was, we'll just let the market take care of this. You know, we'll give a little bit of money, but let the market, we'll let the, you know, if people need masks, then they'll go on the private market and buy masks. And states, and what happened there, of course, states were competing against other states for supplies of masks and PPE and ventilators that corporations were then driving up the price of. That wasn't going to work. We needed everyone to have it. So, you know, and they, you know, they finally realized that because there was no way. This was a crisis that none of us had experienced and anticipated and all of that. So that's, uh, you know, so that was the first thing. The market really didn't do it. You know, they went they went to the market, but the market was the wrong tool. Now, we needed companies to do stuff. We needed companies to make the vaccines and the masks and all that. That's okay. The second piece of kind of what happened, and, and that which still, you know, is still a, of a problem is the vaccines were created because we paid for them. We paid for them in a couple of ways. One is the sequencing of the virus was done so quickly in great part because in the 90s, there was massive public investment in the Human Genome Project that created the demand for sequencing technology. So we we were finding out, we found out fast, they could find out variants fast. So that's the first thing, was basic science was helping to move that. 
But then more specifically, Moderna and Pfizer were the first, you know, the first ones out of the gate. We gave Moderna a grant. We gave Pfizer a pre-buy guarantee. We guarantee, you know, we said, we'll, we'll buy it. And that's all good. And that's all fine. The problem is that we gave them the patents. We gave them the intellectual properties that they had control over. Mm-hmm. Their control gave them an opportunity to benefit financially. It gave them the ability to prevent generics, you know, factories being created around the world to create generics. This was publicly created science, uh, right. publicly invested in science, and we should have had control of it, and we should have control of it now. Could we? Could the government have kept control of the patents? And is that what they did in some Western yes. European countries? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about the other countries, but yes, there are ways for us to keep have kept control in the in the law to keep control of the patents. We, I mean, first off, when you do a deal, if the federal government is doing a deal with a contract with Moderna or Pfizer, you can do whatever you want, right? As long as you agree, we could have said we'll do this if you agree to that. Now, there were also there's also part of the statute allows them to do it in cases of emergency, but we could have set that as just the term of the contract. So did, do you think they did not do it because, you know, these this sounds cynical, but these corporations give to politicians and there's just a lot of, I don't know, hyper capitalism? Or do you think it was just the, like the fog or the fog of the pandemic or a combination? What's your best guess on that? Well, I, I think, you know, given how fast things were moving and how crazy it was for all of us. I mean, just think back to March and April of 20, like 2020, right? It was a crazy time. So, yes, there's lots of political influence that uh, by corporations and politicians. That's that's an always. So, yes, they have, you know, they have relationships have relationships based on power and, and money. But secondly, and I think perhaps more important in this case, there's sort of an ideological predilection for, you know, don't get in the way of corporations and innovation and what they do. And so, you know, let's let them have the New property, you know, it, it was just sort of the in the stream of the market should rule. Yeah, I remember Jared Kushner talked about this. He apparently profited on it. President Trump talked about it. Um, yeah. You know, but you talk about speaking of that, you talk about in the book about how some of these pharmacies, I don't know if I should mention their name, sort of price gouged. And I was in Florida during uh, Hurricane Andrew and that, you know, they were charging too much for lumber. So, so then the Florida legislature passed some sort of a law saying you can't price gouge. Is there any kind of price gouging law or did anything come out of that or is it still happening? You know, this is a big subject. I mean, we now for the first time, this is not quite on point, but we, you know, can negotiate, Medicare can negotiate uh, with pharmaceutical companies for prices for Medicare recipients, you know, for purchasing of drugs. You know, and the Republicans and corporations stopped that for many, many years. But now there's, you know, we're making some progress there. The federal government's got tools. The question is, do they have, you know, can they use the tools given the power, given the votes they need in Congress, given the, you know, given all of that? Um, and, you know, we, we're a property rights country. You know, our mm-hmm. Constitution's all about property rights and, you know, intellectual property. You know, there's a sacred piece of American economy that want property rights intellectual property, that's their stuff. And that's what drives economies and growth. And, you know, I think it's wrongheaded, but it's not entirely untrue. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, when I talk to my students at the beginning of the semester, most of them are like, oh, privatization sounds good. But after they learn about the things with prisons and all of the nefarious things, then they have a different point of view. And I think most people, it sounds good, right? Because of the market and all of that. Yes. The, the the values and you know and power of the market 
businesses are more efficient, government is inefficient and wasteful. These are sort of common sense ideas that have been that have, perco- that have been fomented, it's not an accident, and really have infected and you know our, our, our common beliefs around the country. Okay, and we're going to talk about that. I talked about PPPs at the top. Can you just explain this and how that how it plays out? Yeah, sure. So we're talking about in this case, uh, really specifically talking about infrastructure, water systems, roads, bridges, buildings, parking lots, and parking meters. You know, physical assets is mostly what where we talk about. P, I call them P threes, but either either way, essentially, what you know to break it down real simply is you know things cost money. To build, you want to build a new bridge, it costs a lot of money. You want to build a house, it costs a lot of money. You got to borrow the money. Okay, so the typical way we build, you know, public things is we will, you know, governments will pass bonds, you know, a municipal bond or you know, a, a you know, tax reduced bond, borrow the money and then pay it back over time. That's the typical way things happen. But both because of ideas and companies that want to make money off this stuff, and uh, you know, and the fact that it's hard to raise taxes sometimes politically, that now the people are starting to go to the private market. Okay, We'll borrow money from the private market, which, of course, private loans are a lot more expensive than public loans, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, a lot more. So one is they go to the money to, to that. And but then part of the deal is often that the private lender, you know, it's usually a consortium, Gets control of the assets for many for many years. I, you know, I'll, better to give a couple of and then, so let me give a couple of examples. You mentioned Chicago. Or, you know, we've been when we were talking earlier. So Chicago parking meters is one of the best examples. Um, in two thousand and eight, during the worst part of the recession, the Great Recession, cities are bleeding red ink. A proposal was made to the city of Chicago by a consortium of Morgan Stanley, a Wall Street investment firm. An investment firm, a na- you know, what's called the Sovereign Wealth Fund from one of the Middle Eastern countries, and a national parking company. But they would give the city $1.1 billion up front, you know, in a desperate time, in exchange for control of the city's 36,000 parking meters for 75 years. The deal was done. They, they, took, they took the deal. Desperate cities do desperate things. There wasn't much scrutiny of this deal. So they were going to finance the city, basically. And in exchange, they were going to get control of the asset. Now, what happened? I mean, they voted on it very quickly. First, prices went way up mm-hmm. for, for parking meter rates. So, I mean, it's an incredibly stupid deal financially for a city to do that. You know, I mean, the, 75 years means till 2083. It's a long time. Right. You know, we're going to be driving in 2083. <laughs> so, but here's what's most important about this, because this is, and, and I'll get back to the larger question of P3s. Now, the city for the, for the entire, for the life of the contract, if they want to, remove parking spaces, parking, you know, paid meters for to change land use patterns, to eliminate, you know, to, to move more bus rapid transit lanes, bike lanes, pedestrian malls, to do their job, climate and land use and housing and all the things they're supposed to do. If they want to do any, if they make a decision, if they want to make a decision that does any of those things and eliminate spots, they have to buy them back. That handcuffs democracy. That's just so shocking city, to me. Shocking to me. It's it's shocking to everyone at this point. And by the way, the companies have already made their money back. They got plenty of years of gravy left. If the city wanted to do bike lanes or anything, they would have to get permission from that. They would have. Well, if they want to, I don't know about if bike lanes and keep the meters. If they would have to have permission for that, right? If they wanted to eliminate spots, eliminate meters, they have to buy them back. They don't have to get permission. They have to buy them. They pay. Right. 
So, you, so, so I, a lot of a lot of towns have decided to waive meter fees and do away with them because they hurt, you know, disproportionately poor people. So that city couldn't do that, is what you're saying? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so there was a, a professor at Roseville University there in the city who had interviewed city transit planners a number of years ago, and they, after, but after the deal was done, that they were not able to implement a plan for twenty. They call bus rapid transit or dedicated bus lanes, right? To get people out of their cars and deal with climate. They couldn't do it because they didn't have the money, right? So that's why the, the privates have control over our ability to make decisions about how we want to run our city. So the reason you asked about P3 is the reason that's a terrible deal. Everyone hates it around the country, but the features are common. You sign long-term deals. First off, you're spending more money because private money is more expensive than public money, public debt. Right. And you're giving them some authority. So there are road deals around the country, private privatized roads and you know, and P3s and roads, where the public agencies is prohibited or limited in their ability to improve roads that would compete with that road. They're called non-compete clauses. So th- that's the point. When you sign, that's the problem with P3s is that you give away some, you give away money, but you also give away authority. Was there any like public input? Did it happen fast? Did these people contribute to city council members? I mean, seems kind of no. Uh, no, it, the proposal was made on a Friday. They voted on it to the next Tuesday. There was no scrutiny. Desperate city, 2008, a horrible economy, facing hard choices. I don't know. I don't know what they were, but maybe having to lay off a thousand cops or, you know, or firefighters or whatever. I don't know. This was a desperate moment. They took the deal. Here's a, you know, because they were, you know, they're being offered a billion dollars. So if a citizen wanted to complain to the government, the meter took my money or my car got towed or this got screwed up, they would, this city would say, well, you have to call this private company. They don't even have to answer the phone, right? Those cases happen a lot in P3s. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly right. In dorms, okay. there's a lot of dorms now that in, for public universities that are moving to P3s. Problem with the dorm a kid has, call the private. It's not our problem. The university is not our problem. Oh, my God. And I know in the state I'm in, when people want to get their driver's license, the uh, a couple of private companies have the monopoly on the on the driving education yeah. and test and they price gouge. But anyway, <laughs> that's course, a bit yeah. of a rabbit hole. This is so, markets work. This is yeah. so pervasive. And I think a lot of people just aren't aware of it. I mean, they experience it like right with the driving and the dorms and stuff like that. But I don't know that everybody connects the dot. So they don't. We're not sort of aware of what's public and private around us necessarily. Like the trash, the trash gets picked up by city workers in my town. In other towns, it's picked up by a private company. But in both cases, they believe it's a city service. Right. Yeah, that's the rough. So there's a lot of merging and mixing, and we're not always aware of what the difference between public and private is in our in our daily life. People might blame public workers when it's actually a private uh, entity that's responsible for the trash not being taken out. Or they'll blame the city council. They'll blame the city council, the elected officials, and say, "Why aren't you doing this?" Because you know, even though it's contracted out. And there may not be adequate oversight from the city agency to the private contractor. So, you know, the, the elected, you know, our policymakers always get blamed. So I just have to talk about the private pr- prison industry because I think this is one of the most nefarious things happening. I, When I had my master's thesis, it was on this. 
And I learned so much and it was it's very dark. So I know that the industry gives a lot of politicians uh, money and they're aggressively trying to increase the number of private prisons. So can you just explain this and how it's playing out? Yeah. So, you know, there was a business opportunity. Now that's for, for things are important to remember. There was a there's a lot of money spent in corrections and immigration detention in this country, and there was a business opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. The first wave of the growth of the prison system was driven in part by lots of strong on crime legislation. Three strikes, you're out. Sentencing, you know, harsh sent mandatory sentencing for nonviolent offenders and all that. The crime so bill. Grew, yeah. The crime bill. And, at, and at every state level and all that. all those, And the private companies that wanted to expand the, that market helped with that. They were investing in that politically passing, you know, trying to pass laws and they, you know, they helped with that. So that's kind of the second phase. So that's number two. Number three is then, you know, there are two very large publicly traded companies that, you know, run a lot of, a lot of, a lot of prisons around the country and also a lot of immigrant detention centers, federal immigrant detention centers. They're publicly traded. They're embedded, right? They have economic interest in what happens in their state capitals and in the federal government. When they report to their shareholders, which they do every year, they tell them what what things could get in, you know, could hurt their bottom line in, a, in some filings to the, to the SEC. And they're pretty honest. They say reduce crime, lower sentences, legalization of marijuana. Those are those are could hurt the private prison industry. So if you're the, the you know, the leadership of a publicly traded private company like that, you have to be involved in any policy at the state or local or federal level that could affect your bottom line. And that's that's so, that's so sad. So reducing crime or not arresting young men of color for small amounts of marijuana can hurt your bottom line. So you have no. It's very. So you sad. have to. Yeah, yeah. And you have. And again, you're responsible to your shareholders. You have fiduciary responsibility to protect their interests. So you got to weigh in. Now, the other thing that we found in, in private in prison contracts, we did research a bunch of years back. A lot of them, this is we looked at the state level. So state prisons, which there are a lot of, the majority of the contracts had bed guarantees in them. In other words, keep the beds filled or pay anyway. Um, 80%, 90%. There were some states, Arizona was 100%. No matter if the prison is filled or not, Pay us. Now, there's two things too important to note there. One is, let's say they're getting paid. Why would they care? Well, they might lose the contract if the, you know, so it's still in their interest to have heads and beds because their contract, you know, expires and they may have to get renewed. And if there's not enough bodies, they may not get renewed. But here's even more important. Arizona did legalize marijuana, I believe. Mm-hmm. The prison population did go down. We got to pay them anyway, as if the prisons are full, which is dollars that could go to job training, substance abuse, therapy, rehabilitation, yeah, yeah, all of the above, the things that we would need. So again, we're losing that flexibility, a contract like Chicago, a contract, a, a deal's a deal, legally binding. We lose that flexibility to respond to the needs of the public as they change and happen. So Donald, it sounds like what you're saying is once that contract is signed, <laughs> you know, the it could we could be screwed until I don't know how long these contracts last, but um and most of these are on the state level, right? Well, there's most of the private prison contractor state, most of the federal federal detention, immigrant detention is mostly private, and that's federal. 
Is there anything a presidential administration could do, I don't know, executive order or something to at least limit or stop this on the federal level? Absolutely. No, Biden, I mean, Obama did it. Trump undid it. Biden did. I mean, yeah, no, Biden, I think, redid it is say we are not going to. And you can't cut a contract in the middle. He said, we are not going to renew any of the private prison contract that they have with the marshal service and the, you know, the Bureau of Prisons. Now, he didn't say it on immigrant detention. This is an important point. If all private immigrant detention contracts went away, now I'm not, you know, I'm not, I have different views on immigrant detention, but say we're, we, we still need to do it. We don't have the space. We don't have the capacity to meet the, the existing policy need, which is another reason why when we contract, even if the contract is three years, not 75, like Chicago, once we've outsourced it, we no longer have the people and expertise and to actually do it which means they just keep getting the contract over and over again because we don't have the ability. Right. And, you know, the sad thing about the prison and jail situation, well, I guess the prison situation is that, you know, this is not a population that has lobbyists and their mother or their father may be in a poor community. And I've heard anecdotally, I've read this, that with private prisons, the amount for the phone call is yep. more expensive, um, that there's a lot of added fees to see your family, that soup might be watered down. During this heat wave in Texas and Louisiana, it came out that a lot of these prisons didn't have air conditioning. I mean, my God. And That's right. And I mentioned the third phase of privatization, actually, is the expansion of private involvement in the other parts of criminal justice. So from when someone gets arrested to when, you know, every piece and go, you know, and is tried and goes to prison, goes to jail, goes to jail, goes to prison, gets out, is in rehab and all that. Every piece of that, the large companies are getting a piece of, including inside the prison, the commissary, the phones, the visitation, the, the health care. Private companies are now involved in the entire stream from arrest to, you know, to release off of probation. So less accountability, less recourse for the families and the prisoners. Then, Yeah, exactly. And, it, you know, I think it's important to say it's, it's real simple. Businesses just want to sell stuff. Right. The more they can sell, the better. And so and they want to get a piece of whatever, you know, they're looking for business and the federal government spends 80 billion. No, the, the, we spend, I think it's federal and state. 80 to 100 billion dollars a year on corrections. Well, you know, they're just looking at that and say, how much, how big a piece can we get? And I think there's this mythology among the public that somehow private companies will do the right thing, will be more efficient, will be more accountable. I have never been as accountable as I was when I worked for state government, because if we didn't do something right, then a politician's constituent services could complain, we could get fired, we had an inspector general, all of that. And When I was in the state government and a child support office, the Republican legislature insisted to do a pilot to privatize child support. And the private companies, they only worked on the low hang for the cases they could get orders on. And so the people they neglected were the the women or the custodial parent whose non-custodial parent was jumping from state to state, hard to serve. So it was a failure and there was no accountability. Nobody could get them on the phone. And it was just, I don't know, my experience has just not been too positive with all of this. And let me talk about it. Let me bring, go back to prisons and talk about the the efficiency that you raised. Okay. So, because it's an important idea. Efficiency is, you know, it's not a bad thing. Efficiency means you're going to do less or spend less and get more or get better, right? We, you know, we all think of better ways to do things and be more efficient. 
It's a math problem. So spend less, get more. So the first question is, what are you going to, I mean, in a private, when you privatize something first, you have to remember there's a bunch of money leaving the service, dividends, profits, executive compensation, a bunch of money that's going out the door. So now you have to really figure out how to spend even less. So what are you going to spend less on? In a prison, it's an incredibly finite list. You could have fewer workers, fewer corrections officers and workers, which they do. There was a a juvenile detention facility in Mississippi that had a 60 to 1 ratio, corrections officers to inmate. Bad things happen. They ultimately had to close that thing because it was violent and all that. So they could have fewer workers. In in social services, it would be fewer workers, higher caseloads, right? Not good for for the service. You could pay them less, which they do, you know, reduce wages, reduce benefits. That creates higher turnover. Or you can use crappier equipment. And they do that, too. You know, in Ohio and Michigan, I think it was a number of years ago, Aramark was running the food services in, a, in, in prisons. Mm-hmm. They found maggots in the food. I mean, yeah. two things. They spent less on the meals, which meant higher fat content. They were less healthy. Right. And they found maggots in the food. So the, the super important thing to say, to add, a question to ask when people say, well, what business is more efficient? We say, maybe. But tell us exactly what you're going to spend less on because it may not be in our interest. It sounds like with these private prisoners, taxpayers aren't saving any money because we still have the same expenditure and then the profit added. And it seems to me that there's a lot of expense on the back end, because if 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 it's the opposite of rehabilitation, people come out less healthy, abused, neglected. And, you, you know, you have these low paid people that might be more likely to, I don't know, be abusive or mean or whatever, because they're not getting paid much. Right. Mm-hmm. So is it true that it can cost the taxpayers more money with privatization, both on the front end and the back end? Uh, Absolutely. Without question. Now, without question, and there's even another little piece here. If you contract for something, anything, to paint your house, so, you know, everybody contracts for things. One thing we all know is that if you don't watch, bad things happen. Now, it's not that they're criminal or crooks. They just may forget something or like, if you got to watch, you got to manage. Yeah. So if a, if a public agency or a government agency is going to outsource something or privatize something, what they need to do is increase the number of people who work for the government who can monitor the contract. Yeah. And they don't and they don't do that. Right? And there's probably less audits. And when I worked exactly. for the, when I worked for the government, we were audited all the time and we had so much accountability that I, I don't see that with these, especially these private yes. That's exactly right. No, that's I mean, that's what you have to audit more. You have to manage or it's harder to manage when something is further away and contracted out and you lose transparency and you you know, you lose access to information. So, yes, it's more expensive. It's more bureaucratic. And, I mean, they cut cor- and they cut corners. And the politics of this, I mean, it's bipartisan. I mentioned Clinton was involved with it. Um, but it does seem that the Republican Party is, is more aggressive. Has Is there, I mean, I know that I think Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders have talked about how bad this is. And But has there been much political awareness and pushback on this other than them? <laughs> Yeah, well, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, now I, I, we don't do a, our organization. We don't do a lot of work federally. We do a lot of work in the states and the cities and you know local governments around the country. So, yes, there's a lot of pushback. I mean, there, you know, there's you know, there's a lot of places in the country. So, there are proposals to privatize specific things, bus routes, or you know, anything from bus routes to a water system or anything in between. 
that don't succeed. The proposals to privatize fail because people organize, there was there's investigation, there's scrutiny done. That's number one. Number two is there are places where things that were services that were outsourced are insourced because it just didn't work. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's a it's a battleground. There's, we're, there's, there's wins and losses. Now, I think you're you were right about one thing and then a little bit wrong about another thing. I'll, I'll correct you. for earlier. Oh, great. <laughs> Good. So, so, yes, it's definitely the it is a now part of the Republican agenda to outsource and contract out now. They have multiple purposes there. They want to reduce the size of government, even though it doesn't. They want to weaken unions, which it does, right? Make them smaller. Um, And they want to help their friends, right? Okay, so all those things are true. That's going on all the time. What was wrong about what you said was Reagan. Reagan was not the big privatizer. He failed to privatize much. And there was great frustration on the right that he was unable to do that. Because, you know, the Congress was controlled by, there were for a couple of reasons, the main reasons. Congress was, you know, solidly Democratic. Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House. It was a different political time. And people were starting, you know, the New Deal was, you know, was, we're, people were sort of used to the stuff, right? You know, we're used, we had a greater belief in public services a little bit, even though that was weakening during that decade. They made a big effort. What is true uh, is Clinton supercharged it. Yeah, I knew that. <laughs> so, you know, that's, I mean, the, I mean, in lots of different ways, welfare reform included privatization for the first time of a major social service. Uh, you know, um, Clinton was the privatizer. And that's yeah, really I remember. Yeah, I remember they had all of those big press conferences with Vice President Gore where they were going to, I forget the term, but make uh, less government, yep. make government work better through the private part. Yep. It is true, though, that Reagan did re- deregulate a lot, which sort of ties into this air traffic controllers and things like that. Absolutely. No, I mean, Reagan was the, a spokesperson for privatization. He just failed politically to carry it out. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, and there was frustration. And so, you know, the strategists on the right out of Heritage and Cato and these places came up with new, you know, a realization that they needed to use privatization as a strategy to weaken what they called the pro-budget consensus, pro, you know, public spending consensus. And lots of things changed because of that. The corporations got organized. To start advocating for privatization, mm-hmm. um, you know, a whole lot of things ideologically happened. Clinton's, you know, what you were referring to was the what's called the National Performance Review, that, you know, that Vice President Gordland, and privatization was baked in. Reagan said, you know, the, the most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Clinton said the era of big government is over. The era of big government is over. You know, it was a period of anti-government sentiment that was fomented and but and also very real yeah you touched on this i asked about you know pushback are there any states or municipalities that are banning privatization there are some states that i think it might be illinois but I, you know i can't hurt to keep track that ban private prisons absolutely oh, okay there are states that you know remember privatization is a big term you know so it's contracting for things there are lots of places where they have standards for contracting that in the end make it and make it a lot more expensive and harder to privatize so they don't you, know, you have to pay better wages and conditions and have good standards so yeah there's a lot of contracting law and statute around the country that it doesn't ban it it you know it, it, it addresses it in serious in serious and positive ways right with the federalist structure we have probably less in vermont more in texas and it's sort of all over the place right yeah oh, exactly exactly right 
Okay, so I have to talk about the military industrial complex and all of the profits from private contracts. You know, this would need its own podcast, but we did see during the Bush Cheney years how there was a disincentive to stop war because even vice president was profiting. And so can you talk about how this plays out in terms of war and peace? You know, Iraq, well, you know, with W. Bush, the privatization of war was supercharged. Blackwater, troops on the ground. What's the Wagner group in Russia? Similar things, right? More, you know, didn't want to reinstitute a draft, you know, or let's just pay people and privatize it, right? There's also, you know, obviously massive federal spending, spending on weaponry, you know, and that, so therefore there's an interest in selling more weaponry, right? Right. Bombs and, you know, and planes and things like that. So we saw a, a massive investment in privatization during, and a massive turn towards privatization of war. And, you know, I think it was, it might've been the Iraq war. It's kind of the first war we didn't actually pay for. In previous years, they were war taxes. In previous wars, going back, you know, we were, you're going to go to war. This is what I believe. For whatever, legitimate or illegitimate, you're going to go to war, then we all should be involved. It's a democracy. And which means the only way for us all to be involved is either go to war or pay for it. We waged war on credit cards, which is insane. So we both, the American people didn't feel it because we, because we were privatizing the, the troops and, you know, a lot of the troops were privatized in some level and we didn't have to pay for it either. So we were, um, I think that the, the shift to private makes mm-hmm. it easier for us to ignore the consequences and the decisions we make about going to war. Right. Yeah. And there were all those stories about waste, fraud and abuse, largely because of privatization, which, again, yeah. is yeah. Uh, seems to be yeah. in it's contrast. And there's contracts. I mean, you know, the federal government is not going to build a war plane, a bomber, right? They're not going to do that. So they're going to contract. But again, it goes back to, are you contracting? Are you paying attention? Are you getting a good deal? Are you watching? Are you, you know, are you getting gouged? Are you, you know, they... So it's not we're not against contracting of all kinds because it's you know there's lots of con- things that have to get you know we have to sign contracts to get things done in some cases, but you got to do it right. You right. negotiate hard. You got to make sure you are protecting the public interest, not you know, and not handing it over. Yeah, in countries like Japan, when they do when they commission a high speed train, they're either the government's either doing it or they're watching every step of the way, and it it happens quicker. That's just my editorial. It's yeah, the only way to do it. So we uh, we touched on President Reagan, and I mentioned that he deregulated a lot, including air travel, and he fired striking air traffic controllers. He also banned their rehire. He sort of, you mentioned um, you know President Clinton, President Reagan, but there's also President Carter, and I was surprised to learn this, but Reagan really accelerated airline deregulation, and it, it was actually started in 1978 by President Carter with the right. airline. Deregulation Act, That's although right. it didn't really take right. off until Reagan. Uh, you know, so anybody who travels by plane experiences these detriments. So just yesterday, I was shocked, but U.S. Senator Tim Scott, who's a presidential candidate, he said that President Biden should fire all of the striking auto workers. Now, I'm not even sure. I mean, I don't know if the president could do that. Of course he can't do that. Of course he can't do that. They don't work for him. (laughs) Well, how was Reagan able to do it? Was Reagan able to do it because the air traffic controllers were in... It's public. They're federal employees. They're part part of the FAA. So the thing, I'll mention something, though. You're talking about deregulation, because I have a a very specific definition of privatization that includes deregulation. I okay. define privatization as private control over public goods. 
We talked earlier about what I define public goods. Something is deregulated or something is underregulated or something is not regulated but not enforced, right? Let's take a factory near a school emitting some sort of toxic emissions and they are near a community or a school and they are underregulated, deregulated, and, uh, you know, not reg- strong regulations, but unenforced. And in a way, that company is getting control over the health of the kids who live in that neighborhood next door. Right. Right. Because those are public things, health, clean air, those are public things. So I think, you know, so deregulation is very much giving power to private companies to make decisions that limit our options and affect our lives. Right. I talked earlier about how people are being malaffected by all of this, but the dots are not necessarily being connected. This ties into consumer protection. People realize that they don't have much consumer protection. You know, they try to reach some company, they get put on hold, they can't really get through. And so I think that's a factor. And you had mentioned that the Republican part of the agenda was union busting. I think that this all ties into the agenda of, as you mentioned, reducing the size of government, busting unions, helping their friends. Do you feel yep. like the most of the pushback is in the Democratic Party? Definitely is. Yeah. Is there enough now? But yes, there definitely is. I yeah, mean, I mean, there are places, you know, there are, this is a little anecdotal, but you know, school vouchers, uh, legislation is being proposed in lots of conservative states. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they don't succeed. You know, these are states with supermajority Republican you know, legislatures. They don't succeed because rural Republicans like their schools. Yeah, yeah. So that there makes- are places where if you can get out of the part of the, the super hyperpartisan, you know, this is our team, this is your team, when you actually just want to kind of run your town or run your state. There are places you can get have conversations about how to do good government. And yeah, not, since you, you know, anything. yeah. Since you brought up vouchers, I'll just talk about this now. So with the whole school choice thing to me is sort of siphoning money away from public schools, which hurts, you know, inner city kids, kids that parents can't afford to get them to a private school or even access it. My big concern, the reason I don't like this is because of the violation of the separation clause. A lot of public de- taxpayer money goes to now private religious schools. And that's a big concern to me. So I, mean, I don't know what your thoughts on are. The, on. Well, no, I mean, uh, well, I'd say two things. One, I completely agree. I mean, you know, voucher private schools are unregulated for the most part, right? Charter schools are in between. They're regulated, but too lightly regulated. Absolutely. I, I you know, I come completely. But let me correct you slightly on one thing, though, as well. Private schools, the push to move, you know, to pay for private school tuitions through vouchers, doesn't just hurt poor kids, it hurts every kid. And here's why. When a kid leaves a school, a public school, to go to a private school with their voucher or a charter school with, you know, and they and the, the, the money follows the kid. But what doesn't follow the kid is all the cost. So if you if one kid leaves a classroom, all their money goes with them, but you don't fire a 29th of a, t- of a teacher. Right. So you have a net loss to the rest of the people in the district, which isn't just poor kids, it's everybody. And who is it just the parent that decides if that kid gets moved or can the system do it? I'm not quite sure how that no, works. It's a, it's, um, well, and there's a difference between vouchers and charge, but yes, it's the parent, parents. 
So when schools, you know, when schools have a drain, a brain drain or a kid drain, then they have less money for the books and the, the school can yeah. go down. Exactly what happens. And that's the, that's the goal. I appreciate that clarification. We touched on this. Let's. I want to talk about this lack of transparency, because, again, the paradox is that people, proponents of this policy say, oh, we'll have more transparency with the private sector. But it seems to me that um, there are these backroom deals and revolving door iron triangles, which I talk about in my classes. And I'd mentioned Vice President Cheney with Halliburton. He was sort of a revolving door poster boy because, you know, they're in the Congress or they're in the executive branch and then they go to work for a private prison company or private contract and they share information back and forth. So what are your thoughts on this and how this plays? Yeah, that's not the biggest. I mean, that's a problem for sure, but that's not the main problem around transparency, actually. The the main problem is when something goes from public to private, it goes from dark to from light to dark. There is um, an exemption to, to exemptions to FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, for trade secrets or proprietary and confidential information. When people try to get let's say a, a contract, and there's, a, there's a picture of one, I think, in our book, something is private, is contracted out from a public agency. And you then ask a public can get the contract, but often in the contract, lots of stuff is redacted. You can't find out the salaries, you can't find out how much the CEO made, you can't find all sorts of stuff. And, and it's very, very common. So we just, we actually lose access to the information because they say, well, that's all a trade secret. And what they mean is that's our secret sauce. And if we told you that, we have to tell our competitors that. That's the, you know, that's how the market works, right? Uh, Let me give an example of uh, in charter schools, which again are publicly funded, privately operated, most by nonprofits, but many with for profit, they they hire for profits to manage it. Charter school teachers have to sign an NDA as a condition of employment a non-disclosure agreement that they will not share the school's trade secrets if they, you know, either while they're employed or after they're employed. So the question is, what's the trade secret? Mm-hmm. The trade secret is curriculum, lesson plans. Now, right. remember two things. I mean, what, one thing, one is we pay for every, you know, it's all our money. <laughs> we're paying for it all. And they're saying, no, that's our trade secret because we're in the market. <laughs> we, we're turning education into a market good. If a teacher comes up with an innovative method to teach kids that isn't on tech, that's just, some, you know, I got this cool stuff that I figured out. They can't go to another school and say, hey, look what I got, because they, they they created it while they were working for the, the charter school. And the charter school said that's our intellectual property. Now, the purpose of charter schools originally was to create, you know, little laboratories of innovation and then share the knowledge so everyone could benefit. It's now something very different. Okay, got a few more quick things here. So in chapter three is entitled privatization, privatizing public health makes us sick. So do you have some examples of this? Because I know this is a big issue, especially during and after COVID. So one is stuff that we've already talked about is the COVID, right? Hmm. Public. I mean, it was clear a public, I mean, a disaster of all proportions and at its root, a public health disaster, right? So a couple of pieces. One I've already talked about. You know, we said let Trump said let the market do it. Complete failure. But also part of that was this is you know, again part of my bigger definition of private control over public goods is we had disinvested in our public health system over many many years. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the public infrastructure to help people. 
the people who are on their own in the market. That's the, the, the private. So that's, I think that's mostly sort of the biggest example. I mean, the other piece was water. We talked about access well, we haven't to clean talked, water. We haven't talked too much about water. So let's talk about that now, because you devote okay. several chapters to water. Access to clean water is a public health issue. Right. Access to clean water, to, you know, to sewage treatment and all that is a public health issue as well. So I, I always find it interesting that, that, you know, to connect these things as well. Yeah. So water, you know, there's drinking water, there's wastewater, there's stormwater, right? And so these are sort of the water systems. And then that, and that doesn't mention, that doesn't, that ignores the whole like Nestle's and water companies getting access to our aquifer. So I'm just going to leave that aside. Uh, <laughs> so... I mean, so again, we spend a lot of money on water systems. They are all, many of them are outdated. This is, you know, the infrastructure bill and the American Rescue Plan are going to help a lot with this. But our our water systems are really in a state of disrepair and need massive investment. And we basically, for the most part, pay for water as a commodity, individual rates. So we weren't doing that. Things were failing. Private sector is there are huge global corporations that want a piece that see the possibilities that have been, you know, going to cities and states and saying, you know, we'll take it off our hands. That's happening a lot. Now, I mentioned earlier insourcing. There's also lots of places that are saying that didn't work. We did it. That didn't work. We're bringing water back in-house. Well, that's, yeah, that's good. One of the criticisms of unregulated capitalism, and I think we, I, we probably agree that we have that here in the United States, is, you know, economic inequality. Um, you devote a chapter to how privatization contributes to inequality in general. And can you just talk about this? Because I think it's very important. Well, one of the prime ways is, you know, jobs. There are millions of people who work, who provide public services, but don't get a paycheck from a government agency. They get a paycheck from a contract. Okay. It's big. The numbers, I don't have the numbers on the top, but it's really big. Huge. One of the main reasons and outcomes of outsourcing is reduced wages and benefits, right? You gotta you gotta hold the whole compensation package. So a $30 an hour job, you know, that's 60,000 a year, becomes uh you know a $20 an hour job, or a $25,000 job becomes a $12,000 an hour job with fewer benefits. That, you know, inequality is about some making less and some making more. Right, because right. Fe- because federal government employees have benefits and tend Absolutely. to earn more than these private companies pay, right? Is Absolutely, that- they're unionized. I mean, but they, when something gets privatized, they say we can save money. And like I said earlier, how do they save money? They cut wages and benefits. It's like it's the main issue of, of well, and others as well. If poor people don't have access to a public service, rich people, you know, well, middle class and rich people do. If if it's an essential public good. And that we're not providing that, again, furthers and fosters inequality. Right. And advocates of school choice, they will help these poor families and everything. But there is also the element of having to, you know, jump through hoops and sort of networking and get on lists. And, you know, it's with the public school, you're zoned to public school, you show up. I got a great public education. And I think that that ties into inequality also. Absolutely. I mean, again, if. It's not exactly to your point, but I consider childcare a fully privatized public good. Now, I was just, a, you know, visiting my grand, my three-year-old grandson and his parents recently, and tw- they're paying. What did she say? Twelve hundred bucks a month. It is Child a crisis. Care. It is a crisis. It's a dog. crisis. Yeah. So you're poor. You don't have that money, which is most people. Most, you know, really, most people don't have that kind of cash. 
then what are you doing? I mean, you're both, you're working, you might be working two jobs and you're struggling and all that. You're not home to help your kids with homework. There's impacts that, you know, kind of mushroom out. Yeah, as I mentioned, these other strong democracies, they tend to have free or subsidized childcare. And there was this that tragic news story. And I, I don't know if I can, I think it was in the Bronx. It was somewhere in New York City about these uh, families that couldn't afford daycare. So they had their children in this childcare. And then the children, one of the children died because there were opioids in yeah. there. The media didn't really cover the part of it that the reason why parents sometimes have no choice but to get whatever they can get, you know, and, yep. and it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, things things we value cost money. The only and right. If we think every child should have an access to good quality care, they cost money. The only question becomes is how much and who and how do we pay for it? Do we pay through taxes? Do we pay through individual you know, prices, you know, commodity pricing or a mix? Those are the choices or not at all, which is really what we're doing. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that even those of us without children, I want an educate. I want to pay for public schools. I want to pay for libraries. And my view is that if we don't pay for these things, we pay for it on the back end with more crime, yeah. obesity. We pay for all of these social problems, gun violence. So, I mean, it's too bad. Yeah, it's-, it's not just that you want to, it's that you need to. I mean, if we want a functioning economy, a functioning democracy, decent livelihoods for all of us, which, which is all interrelated with that, then we got to do our part. Right. And we see what happens when people aren't in the educational system and they're you know, some of this radicalization, white supremacy, and all of this ties in together, I guess. Uh, it probably does, yeah. So, Donald, before we wrap up, um, I just have a couple of questions. Um, what can the public do to at least learn about this issue and hopefully um, at least, you know, know how to put a stop to some of the more nefarious practices? Well, it's just a very productive you know, practical level, you can go, you know, we have a website with a ton of stuff and tools and have both background and ways and strategies and things like that. www.inthepublicinterest.org. But it's, you know, the key thing we teach people and talk to about is to ask hard questions, right? And better before something, be aware of what might happen, you know, just watch the news and, you know, just be aware. You have to, you know, ear to the ground. And also asking the hard questions so things don't get privatized just because, oh, you know, the business community can do it better. We can save money, you know, vote yes. So, you know, I mean, there's lots of tactics and strategies, but the, those are, that's the core of them. And people do it. People, you know, we work with folks around the country that prevent, you know, where a proposal is made to privatize a water system. This happened in Pennsylvania earlier this year in a community in Pennsylvania. There was a coalition built. We provided some research. They asked the hard questions. They, you know, they they provided information. They analyzed how much money people would have to pay for their water afterwards, you know, and they succeeded. There are folks that are succeeding in establishing municipal broadband in places, even though the big telecoms are trying to prevent that from happening. So, yeah, I liked that on a positive note. It sounds like you are. There's a lot of positive things happening. There's a lot of winning going on. Yeah, I think there just needs to be more awareness. And I am a big fan of In the Public Interest. You have a lot of resources. I believe you can even sign up for a newsletter, which I did. And it is in the publicinterest.org. I'll put a link to it on the podcast site. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. I really appreciate you being with us. Thank you for your time. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This was a great discussion. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at 
politics cons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.